everybody. So glad you're tuning in to Everyone Talks to Liz. I want to start this one with a personal memory. Senior year of high school, 1980. The setting, Beverly Hills High School. I had grown up with all these kids, so I knew just about everyone. It's like any small town. But that first week of senior year, 12th grade, I saw a new kid. He was definitely different. Everybody whispered that he was from New York City, which, of course, immediately intrigued all of us California kids. He, at the time, was taller than most of the boys, and he stared, is what I remember, intently at people. We girls thought he was cute in a very mysterious kind of way. But the kids also whispered something else. Someone heard his father was in prison for not paying taxes or protesting tax payments and things like that. And that, of course, made him all the more intriguing. Little did we know back in 1980 that that boy would grow up to have, I don't know, I put it as financial x-ray vision. He would be one of the few who spotted the internet bubble, the one who began recommending people sell their tech and dot-com stocks before the music stopped. And then later, he was one of fewer than, I'm going to say, nine people in the world who called the subprime mortgage and housing bubble well ahead of the implosion and subsequent crisis and recession. So as the world stood shell-shocked, he stood among so few who could say, I told you so. But where did he get that ability? Where did he get that vision to see what so few others could? It's all part of the fascinating story of Peter Schiff, founder and CEO of Euro-Pacific Capital, and yes, my friend, 40 years later from Beverly High. Hi, Peter. Welcome. Oh, hi, Liz. Thanks for having me on your program. And first of all, you know, I didn't stare at all the girls, <laughs> Beverly. I think, I, I think it was just you. Oh, <laughs> now you're okay. Now you're but, buttering me up. Yeah, but I think even then I saw the potential in, uh, in Liz Clayman. <laughs> well, clearly I saw the potential in you because I was completely intrigued. But that was 40 years ago. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, you weren't intrigued enough to dump your boyfriend. But, yeah. <laughs> I eventually did dump my boyfriend, though. But Peter, yeah, but I was then we were gone. For we, were, we weren't in high school anymore. I know, but we also ended up at Berkeley together. But I, I'm very interested in opening your window to our viewers of that point that you arrived in Beverly Hills and what had brought you there and why your mom managed to get you to a great public school district, but away from your father. Um, tell me about the time when you were around 16, 17. Well, first of all, you know, my parents divorced when I was, I think, five years old. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't been living with my dad uh, for pretty much most of my life. And at the time, my mom moved us to California. My dad had was living in Connecticut and we were in New York City. So it, we weren't that close. I mean, we could take a train out and visit him. But my mom ended up moving for work. She had an opportunity uh, to get a, you know, a better job and make more money. Uh, and so she decided to move out to Southern California. And at the time, I was just finishing up my, my junior year at Stuyvesant High School in New York. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my younger brother was a freshman at uh, Bronx Science. And so we ended up moving and she picked, you know, Beverly Hills. We were living in the slums of Beverly Hills. 
uh, just to get into that school district. So my mom, you know, paid a little bit of an extra rent. We were renting a, you know, half of a duplex, but she rented it in that Beverly Hills, you know, zip code. In fact, so I think the- she she had told me once that the back door was in 90210 and that the front part wasn't. So that's how she got around the you've got to live in the school district issue. Well, we were right on the corner. I yeah. remember that I was able to park because in Beverly Hills, as you remember, we had no overnight parking and it was a pain in the butt sometimes. But actually, I was right on the cusp. So I could actually park almost right out front of my house and be in L.A. and I could leave my car there. <laughs> but you had to be careful to make sure I wasn't on the Beverly Hills side of the, uh, you know, of the border. So that's how we went there. And, you know, my dad, it's not like he was in jail like he a lot. He went to jail for the first time he ever went to jail was that 1980, it was a four-month uh, conviction he had for willful failure to file. So that was the first time that he ever went to jail, and it happened to coincide with that senior year. So he hadn't been, you know, in a federal prison, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up until then. And then it was a short, it was a misdemeanor. He was out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up going to jail, you know, or federal prison several times later, uh, well after I got out of college, even. But that was just the beginning that, of course, he ultimately died uh, after being in prison for the last 10 years of his life. And, 89, uh, and age 89. Eight, well, 87, 87. But and, you know, he got he got cancer. But the thing is, my father was relatively healthy. And I think if they the prison system had taken better care of him because he actually got skin cancer on his head and they never treated it. They never diagnosed it. And so by the time it it got all into his lungs, it was everywhere. And so had he gotten proper medical care, he would probably still be alive today. Let me go back to 1980. When your mom pulled you out of Stuyvesant and your brother out of Bronx Science, what was your thought at that time? That's that's uprooting. It's upsetting, isn't it? How did you feel? Well, you know, the only thing that bothered me was a girlfriend I left behind. I mean, I had a pretty serious uh, girlfriend who was a year younger than me. So she was a sophomore and I was a junior. Uh, So I was upset about leaving her. Uh, But other than that, I liked Southern California. I mean, you know, I came from Manhattan and, you know, I, I mean, Beverly Hills is not a bad place to live. So it wasn't like my mom moved me to a horrible place. I did enjoy it there. I enjoyed the weather. Uh, so other than, you know, a broken heart for a while, mm-hmm. you know, which men's when you're when you're 17, I, I was fine. And the thing is, my, my mother had moved around a lot ever since my parents got divorced. We had lived in several places in Florida. Mm-hmm. We lived in Long Island. We lived in Manhattan. So I was always jumping around, which is something that did bother me. I didn't, you know, get to sp- you know, plant roots. And, you know, you grew up in Beverly Hills. So yeah. the people that you graduated high school with, you were in elementary school with. Correct. So you you had a lot of relationships. I never had that. I was always the new kid and uh, just trying to fit in every place I was. So moving uh, to the Beverly Hills, you know, I had already done that so many times. Mm-hmm. It was kind of you know, par for my course. Well, at that time, when your dad was first convicted of that misdemeanor, it was willful failure to pay taxes what was the no it was willful failure to file you see back then you know my dad and he initially was you know an economist his first book was all about economics the biggest con how the government is fleecing you excellent book had fantastic reviews including you know wall street journal hundreds of great reviews it was an excellent book you know uh and, and but you know during the research for that book he found out a lot of things about 
the income tax. And one of the things he found out initially was that um, anybody who filed a tax return was being a witness against themselves within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment, which says that no American can be compelled to be a witness against himself. And he studied a lot of trials where the just judges were, you know, somebody would introduce a tax return, the mm -hmm. government would charge somebody with tax evasion, and then they would introduce a tax return against them. And then if they objected and said, wait a minute, you can't use that tax return against me, that's, you know, uh, you know, it's you know, self-incrimination. Uh, the, they would say, well, you know, you filed it voluntarily. If you didn't want the tax return to be used against you, you shouldn't have filed it I or see. whatever. So, so my dad has started saying, okay, well, you know, if the, if the government is saying, you know, don't file tax returns if you if you don't want to waive your constitutional rights. And in fact, I think initially he did file the return. He just didn't include any information because he said, I don't want to give this information because it could be used against me and I don't want to waive my Fifth Amendment rights. So he 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 did what the Supreme Court said he should do. And then he ended up going to jail for it. But he, he was in jail for failing to file, I even see. though he actually filed. He just filed a Fifth Amendment return and asserted his Fifth Amendment rights. I see. And the government turned that into a crime. And how did your high school brain absorb that? What was your thought? Were you embarrassed? I mean, what was going on at a very tender time in any kid's life? Well, you know, it never really came up much in discussion. I didn't even know that that many people knew about it. I mean, if you're saying everybody knew about it, I mean, I didn't realize that. Um, but other than I think there was an article that was written about my dad that had a photograph of me from that time. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I mean, I supported my father. I mean, I, you know, I knew that my dad was not a criminal, right? I mean, because to be a criminal, you have to have criminal intent. And so it wasn't like my dad was just trying to get out of a tax obligation that he thought he had. Of course. My father was that much was we taking, get. Yeah, he was taking a principled stance. And, you know, initially I supported him, but you know, later on, once I saw that he was not getting any justice in the US court system, that he was being treated like a political prisoner, you know, I and other people encouraged my dad, mm -hmm. look, give up this fight because you can't win because there is no law. It's stacked against you. You're in a government court and there's no justice there. You know, if you are a murderer or a rapist or a robber, you'll get justice in the court system because, you know, the government doesn't care. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll give you a fair trial. But if you're accused of not paying your taxes, forget it. You're not going to get a fair trial. The government also, doesn't want you to have a fair trial. Yeah. They're and they, they fear somebody like your father, Erwin Schiff, because he was a tax protester and he started to get followers and oh, yeah. that could be a real problem despite the fact that we definitely need countries to run and they do that through income taxes. But as you're growing up, did you think that people thought of him as some type of anarchist? Was he an anarchist? I mean countries have to run. No, no. I mean, my father believed in Republican government. He believed in the principles that the country was founded on. He believed in the Constitution and understood the Constitution. So he knew that we needed government and that government needed taxes to run. But he also believed in the Constitution and he didn't think the government should violate the Constitution in order to collect taxes. And he believed in a limited government, which doesn't require a lot of taxes, which is the only type of government 
that the Constitution authorizes. But, you know, I want to mention that when my dad was in jail that first time, that's when he wrote his first book, How Anyone Can Stop Paying Income Taxes, and it became a New York Times bestseller. He sold hundreds of thousands of copies. That book was all over the place. So that was the problem because then my dad started going on more TV shows, more radio shows, hmm. and the government was under pressure to lock him up. And I to silence that, him, sure. Yes, I, I think personally, had my father just not paid taxes based on the constitutional arguments that he had, right? If he simply didn't pay taxes and kept it to himself and just made as much money as he could, he would still be around today having never gone to jail and having never paid taxes. So I don't think the government would have picked a fight with my dad if my dad just kept it to himself Quiet. because then it wouldn't have been worth it. They would have I think they I think that they knew that technically he was right and 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 and, and if he hadn't turned it into a business it had been much harder to convict him. Was his book banned ever? Did they try and ban it? I know you yeah, can't well, ban books in America, but well, that's the yeah, that is an interesting story. So, the the last book that he wrote is entitled "The Federal Mafia," and the Federal Mafia is the IRS, right? The Federal Mafia. So, uh, the U.S. government actually banned my father from selling that book. Right? They they didn't. He was never. It wasn't like convicted of a crime mm -hmm. they just basically said you can't sell that book right and and so other than fanny hill which was you know born a band based because it was considered pornographic mm -hmm. which by today's standard it's not pornographic at all but you know <laughs> 150 years ago right it was por it was pornography but the only other book that's ever been banned by the u.s government other is federal mafia you got the federal mafia you got fanny hill but they didn't ban like Barnes and Noble or Amazon from selling it. They just banned my father from selling it. But my father was the publisher. Right. So he, he wasn't allowed to sell it to a bookstore uh, or an individual. So, and you know, one thing that did happen quietly, and this is an interesting story, very people don't know about this, but my dad always sold books. Uh, uh, you know, Freedom Books was his company. And he never charged sales tax ever. So one day uh, the Connecticut government came in and they charged him with violating you know, failing to pay tax, uh, sales taxes. And my father's response was, hey, I sell books. The First Amendment says that I have freedom of the press. Therefore, you can't tax the sale of a book because anything the government can tax, they could ban because you simply raise the tax so high that people can't afford it. And since people have a limited amount of money, if you tax the sale of a book, then you're limiting the ability of people to afford that book by raising the price. So my father actually objected. And the, the, the state of Connecticut dropped their case and walked away. And they never tried to collect sales taxes from him again, which is something that he kept wow. to himself. But it shows because look at all the people all around the country. Look at all the bookstores mm -hmm. that charge sales taxes on their books. My father said that that tax is unconstitutional and the government agreed and walked away. <laughs> Because he's right. How could you tax books when you have a First Amendment that says there's freedom of the press? So at this point, was money tough growing up? Tell me about that. I mean, what was what was the financial situation? Because your mom had to go to work. She also continued to move up in the world of, I believe, it was fashion. Correct. But Irwin. Well, yeah, my yeah, my dad didn't. I mean, he went through like a, a a tough time. He went through a bankruptcy, which is very unfortunate. And it shows you because my dad. So in in the early 1970s, right, um, and late and, and 1960s rather, my dad had bought a lot of gold and silver. In fact, 
one of the things that my father had done in the 60s, because when we when we stopped putting silver in, in, in U.S. coins in 19, 1968, right? we stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so what my dad started to do was he started to go to uh, you know stores and places that had a lot of change. And my dad would go look through the change and he would take the quarters and the dimes uh, that were made out of silver and he would take them. And, and, and he w- eventually he had like $10,000 worth of change just stored up in a, in a vault, right? Mm-hmm. And and people were making fun of my dad, like, you know, why are you keeping your change at the in a vault? Why don't you just have a bank account and earn interest? I mean, you're not getting any interest. You just got quarters and dimes. And my dad was like, well, because there's silver in there, and I'm buying the silver at the face value of these coins, and, you know, I know that the price of silver is going to go way up. And, of course, eventually those bags of silver that my dad was getting for $1,000 uh, we're trading for $50,000 at the peak in, in, in 1980. And my dad was also buying a gold stocks. But then what happened, unfortunately, to my father is he was the victim of a con. He met somebody that was a con man who was supposedly had a gold mine and convinced my dad to uh, cash in his silver and do that to invest in this gold mine, mm-hmm. which turned out to be a fraud. But unfortunately, my dad had got a lot of his friends and he had an insurance business, but he also did some investments and he had a lot of investors that invested and they all got con. They all lost their money. And my dad paid everybody back. I mean, my dad felt so bad that people lost money that uh, he, he he went and paid them back because this guy was a thief. He just stole all the money. I mean, that was the problem. Oof. Um, and, and so my dad, you know, and he went through a period, he was very depressed. And, and so he didn't even make any money off of that foresight. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, neither did my mom, because my parents got divorced and my mom got a bunch of gold stocks and she sold them right before they went up like 50 times, you know, so had she just held on a little longer, we wouldn't have had any money problems, but she got convinced by her boss to get into the U S stock market and she lost a bunch of money there and she cashed out the gold stocks. But you know, what's interesting is my dad in 1968, just because he had been, you know, politically active, he would go down to the, you know, the Yale green and debate all the liberals all the time on the Yale campuses. And he was, he was, uh, <laughs> a, 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 a Coldwater Republican. In fact, he was a, a delegate to the Ooh. young Republicans convention wow. and he was a big Coldwater guy when, I mean, I mean, if you were a Jew, I mean, A, you were supposed to be a Democrat, but if you were a Republican, you at least had to be a Rockefeller Republican. I Absolutely. mean, people hated, people hated Barry Goldwater, right? But my dad was a big Goldwater guy. Why? Because he was, well, he believes in the free market. And, mm-hmm. and, and but, but the, what the point I'm getting at here is so because my dad had made a little name for himself, writing op eds to the newspapers, right, in the Haven Register, uh, when they were, when they had the hearings on removing, gold backing and going off the gold standard 1968 Senate hearings my dad was invited to testify wow and my dad testified that it would be a mistake right now all of the big wigs were testifying in favor of going off the gold standard you had the secretary of the treasury you had the chairman of the federal reserve they all said that if we went off the gold standard the value of the dollar would go up the price of gold, which was $35 an ounce back then, would go down, that U.S. inflation would be down, that somehow that being pegged to gold was hurting the dollar, and that if we can only get rid of gold, then we'll have a stronger dollar, we'll have um, less inflation, and that gold was being artificially propped up because of its being tied to the dollar, and if we just severed the link, then gold would fall. My father testified the reverse. He said, if you, if we go off the gold standard, inflation is going to rise, 
deficits are going to rise. The price of gold is going to soar. The dollar is going to drop. And of course, he was right. Then we had the nineteen. Then we had the nineteen seventies, and every single thing that my father said would happen if we went off the gold standard happened. And the opposite of what the Secretary of the Treasury said and the Federal Reserve said happened. And the interesting thing is that's true today. That the current Fed Chairman, the current Secretary of Treasury, all <laughs> the things that are coming out of Washington, all these guys are dead wrong on everything they say. Let me interrupt you there and say that. For people who don't understand, in the past, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. Hence, we're talking about Fort Knox. When you hear the term Fort Knox in colloquial discussions, it means that's where they stored the gold that backed up the U.S. dollar and that is no more. It's actually bigger than that. Originally, the U.S. dollar was defined – as a specific weight of gold. Mm-hmm. So the dollar was gold. What was backed by gold were Federal Reserve notes. So what would happen is when they when they printed paper money, right, a Federal Reserve note, that was what was backed by dollars. But the dollars were made out of gold or they were made out of silver. So what happened is we turned the dollar from a weight of gold and silver to a piece of paper with a number on it. So the dollar used to be a real thing, a real tangible commodity. The dollar was gold. Now it's nothing, just something that the Federal Reserve creates out of thin air. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Berkeley. That's where you went to college, which is Ironic, considering you're very much a libertarian, even at that young age, and leaning right, definitely, conservative thought about less government. And you spent some time there, then you left, then you came back. You majored in finance, and you really already had formulated your thought around what your dad believed in, which was the Austrian economic perspective. In a nutshell, for people who don't know what Austrian economics is, can you just explain that to people? Yeah, and you know, even before I do, just uh, just a little bit about my experience in Berkeley. Yeah, you know, very very liberal school. Obviously, I don't think it was quite as liberal in the '80s when we were there as maybe the '60s was or or it is now. But I did remember that my uh, poster of Ronald Reagan that I had hanging in my dorm room. Right, I had a big poster of Reagan, <laughs> and, it, and it, it didn't always go over well when I would bring a girl back up there because. <laughs> If I was bringing a girl to my dorm room, it wasn't to discuss politics. But then, if she saw that poster of Reagan, you know, Oof. I'd have to sometimes say, "Hey, it's a dartboard. I just haven't, I haven't got any." I, I ran, you know, oh, I just good example, <laughs> good excuse. But, Jeez, Peter, you really knew how to uh, thrill people once once they got 
in the door of your dorm room. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the the Austrians uh, believe in in sound money and that uh, economies grow as the result of underconsumption, savings, and production, not. Uh, you know, consumption and and, and, and debt and, and government spending or government money printing. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really it, it's a combination of uh, Adam Smith, you know, free market economics, mm -hmm. but with this Mises understanding of money uh, and how it works, as opposed to a Milton Friedman who, you know, Milton Friedman, uh, father of monetarist school. I mean, Milton Friedman, when it comes to free market economics, is very much an Austrian. The only thing he differs is he, you know, he believes in a certain amount of inflation uh, that the government should expand the money supply by, you know, a certain amount uh, on an annual basis. You know, whereas the Austrians don't, and the Austrians have an explanation of the business cycle that makes a lot of sense. Uh, they understand the boom and bust cycle and how it's created by the false signals sent to the markets when a central bank keeps interest rates artificially low. That's why the Austrians were able to spot the tech bubble of the 1990s and the housing bubble of the 2000s. If you understand Austrian economics, you understand these bubbles. And, and, and that's how I was able you know, to profit from the subprime or dot-coms and, 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 and make some money when that thing popped uh, because I recognize it. And because I'm an Austrian economist, I recognize all the mistakes that the Fed has made since the 2008 financial crisis, and I understand that the U.S. economy today is more screwed up than it's ever been thanks to the Fed, thanks okay. to years and years of artificially low interest rates, and therefore we're headed for a much bigger bust than we've ever had in the past. Okay. I want to go from the dot-com bubble and bust to the bubble that started in real estate, specifically the subprime mortgage bubble. Where did you spot it first? I remember you telling me a story that you had an office in San Diego and there were people, mortgage guys, on another floor and you started to notice things about them. Yeah. And that was your yeah, first well, you indication. Know, when was that? Well, well, first of all, so I was living in, uh, in Southern California in Newport Beach and I had got married for the first time in 2000. Early two, and my wife at the time really wanted me to buy a house. And I was like, well, you know, the housing market's kind of expensive because a lot of people in this area uh, were working for dot-com companies. They had all these stock options. And as soon as they were cashing them out, they were buying these new homes. And I said, you know, the real estate market is overpriced. I expect the market to crash for the dot-coms. I think all that easy money is going to go away. There's not going to be all these stock options to cash in. I think real estate prices will drop with the stock market. So let's hold off and, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll buy a house. So what happened is I was right, 100% right. The market crashed. The NASDAQ was down 80%. The, 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 the dot-coms got mm -hmm. obliterated. But because Alan Greenspan made the mistake of slashing interest rates to 1%, instead of coming down, housing prices actually continued to go up. Even though uh, all that, you know, that option money disappeared, the mistake of lowering interest rates to 1% started to push up home prices. And, you know, and here I was, I had been renting and I was looking to buy and the prices to buy kept going up, but the rents were actually going down. I mean, nobody wanted to rent. So, you know, people were buying houses, extra houses, and then you could rent them out. And so I could see initially that I was renting uh, these houses for a fraction of the cost of what I would have to pay if I bought it. Uh, and, and I was looking at the um, 
the, 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 the credit, the, um, you know, the, the, the lending standards. And I was seeing how easy it was for people to uh, buy a house with very, very low down payments or no down payments. And the banks were offering teaser rates where for the first few years, you, you didn't have to pay the real interest on borrowing the money, even though the interest rate was being artificially suppressed. You didn't have to pay that. And, and so, and what I did then is I, I had started, I had moved my broker dealer from Marina Del Rey and, you know, around LA area down to Newport beach. And I rented a bunch of space, uh, more than I needed. And since I wasn't using it all, I, I was subleasing it. And every tenant I got was a mortgage brokerage company and they would, they would, guys would come in and they would split off from existing mortgage brokers and then they would rent space for me. And I would listen to these guys on the phone and how they were cold calling people to get them to refinance their mortgages. That's all they did. It was like a refi. But every call was, you know, they could help you lower your rate, take cash out. But they were telling them how they can fudge the numbers, how they could dummy up their applications. But how did you look at that one example in your office in San Diego and then multiply it and say everybody's doing this? Well, I knew that it was happening all over the country. These guys weren't unique. They weren't the exception to the rule. I knew that you could buy houses with nothing down or they had negative uh, AM uh, mortgages and, 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 uh, and interest only and adjustable rate mortgages. I knew this was going on. And I can see the home prices going up and up and up and what people were doing and what people were expect could expect. You know, I went to the Mortgage Bankers Convention. Okay, before you tell that story, and this is important, everybody. This was major when it happened. Vegas, correct? Well, yeah. So the, the, there's the, the Western Regional Mortgage Bankers Association. They had a, an annual conference every year. And so in 2005, they invited me to be on a panel. And I was on a panel there with all these experts from uh, the, the banking and the, the housing industry. And I was the only person on the panel who said housing is a bubble. Prices are going to go down. This is going to be a disaster. And this is 2005, which was the peak. But I remember that convention. I mean, this was crazy. I mean, they had live tigers there. I mean, they had so much money. Right? <laughs> oh there, was one, there was one company there that was called Sub Subprime. They were, you know, and they, they, you know, even if you, even if you were still in prison, you, you, you could, you could get a mortgage, right? So it, it was completely nuts, right? And all these guys had so much money because they were all making money. And so I said some things. And then a year later, 2006, this is about September 2006, they said, Peter, you know, um, could you come back to the, to the conference again? And I didn't really get anything out of the first conference. I mean, it didn't give me any business, nor did they pay me to speak. So I was like, all right, I'll come back, but you got to give me a room. I want a workshop because I've got this fund now that we just started to short the subprime mortgage market. Ah. And I want you to give me a room so I can try to get some clients to invest in this hedge fund so that they can short subprime. And I thought that, you know, if I told 3,000 mortgage bankers that they are about to lose their jobs, some of them might want to hedge their future by putting some money in my fund. So I went down there and I did the talk. And that talk is on YouTube. You can go to my YouTube channel and do Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers and you can see my entire presentation. And this is 2006. Have- so the bubble had not burst and you're waiting. Oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. I wish they had the talk from the year before. And I wish there was a, somebody filmed my, my workshop where I tried to get everybody to subprime. But the interesting thing is, so there's 3,000 people that were in the initial audience. Okay. That narrowed down to maybe 50 to 75 people that came to heard my talk about shorting subprime. Okay. And of all those people, only one person actually sent, he sent a half a million dollars into my fund. And he made about 5 million bucks or something like that. I forget Whoa. exactly, but he did really 
he did really well. And it, and it took a year, maybe a year before mm-hmm. he got his money. So that very conference was more. And I was writing. You can go and look because I was writing articles for years and sending him to hundreds of newspapers online, you know, pointing out all the anecdotal evidence I was experiencing and reading about about this housing bubble. But what was more important, I understood that the entire economy was built on the foundation of that housing bubble because all these people were spending money that they didn't actually have because they thought they were rich uh, by owning a home. And they were taking out all these loans. In fact, there were people that didn't even think they needed jobs. If they lived in a house, that's that was the only job they needed is being a homeowner because they were making more money owning their homes and living in them than actually having a job. And so there was all this spending going on and all this l- borrowing. And I knew that the big losses were going to be the lenders. I knew that the people financing housing were going to were going to be the big losers that the real risk in a zero down mortgage was not to the buyer right. he put nothing down he had nothing to lose it was the idiot lenders but i knew this was all going on because of the fed because the fditc deposit insurance it was all the moral hazards created by government not some kind of okay. failure of the free market and so i knew fannie was going to go bankrupt i knew freddie was going to go bankrupt i knew we we're going to have a financial crisis i knew these big banks like lehman and bear were going out of business i knew all this stuff and i was saying it and saying it nobody believe me and you you know you were on you were working at cnbc at the time mm-hmm. i was coming on uh mark faber and uh you know uh mark mark haynes, mark haynes. You know, they started calling me they started calling me dr doom because i was coming on squawk boxes talking about all this stuff that was going to happen I, I got a kick out of the moniker dr doom uh but you know then they then then we doom came <laughs> so and then that's okay. when i stopped going on today but, um, today yeah. you have done very well with the perspective that you have had since you were young that was in part formulated by your father, Erwin. But what have you done differently from your dad? What mistakes do you feel you've avoided? You know, your father almost reminds me of the Howard Rourke character in The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. His principles were so intransigent and so rock hard that it ended up really messing up his life in the end because he died in prison at the age of 87. Yeah, and not so much that he died in prison, but what he missed out on. I mean, the things that he could have experienced. Your grandchildren, grandchildren, your kids. Yes. I mean, he barely knew. uh, He never met my my youngest one, but he barely knew uh, even, you know, my other, his other grandchildren. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, my dad, decided to fight the government, you know, and there's an old expression, you can't fight City Hall. Well, he tried to fight something much better than City, bigger than City Hall, uh, the IRS, the federal government. And and so based on my father's experience, you know, I decided early on that that was not the bottle battle that I was going to fight. The stakes were too high. And, you know, I just wanted to help educate people, but I also, you know, wanted to make a good living for myself. I mean, my father sacrificed that. My father could have made a lot of money, uh, even if he paid taxes. Uh, but he was focusing on this battle the principle. and not paying taxes mm-hmm. to the point that, you know, he lived a very humble life. I mean, my dad had, you know, never had any fancy stuff. He, you know, he was a very simple guy and he lived in a, you know, in a, in a, in a small uh, uh, town home and he drove not an expensive car and he didn't, you know, and he worked constantly. He worked like every day. There was no weekend for my dad. He was constantly 
uh, you know, fighting this battle. And that's all he thought about. And so, you know, I didn't want my life to be like that. I wanted to, you know, enjoy, you know, other aspects of life. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I went about it at a different angle, but I still am, you know, preaching the same stuff about limited government and Austrian economics and the constitution, except instead of just, you know, fighting the IRS and trying to get people to join the battle by dropping out of the tax system, I'm just trying to help people with their investments. I'm just trying to help people avoid the inflation tax. I do believe that the end game is a collapse in the dollar and, you know, it's going to be much worse than what happened in the 1970s. And I want to uh, protect as many people as I can. And I had been paying a lot of taxes throughout my life. I mean, crazy amounts of taxes and I'm finally not paying taxes, but I'm not doing it the same way that my dad did. I did it by moving to Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, so I'm not fighting the IRS. I'm doing what the IRS says I can do because they say if you live in Puerto Rico, then you don't have to pay the income taxes on the money that you earn. Mm -hmm. So fine. I'm living in Puerto Rico and this is where I earn my money and I don't have to pay the tax. If your dad were still alive today, do you think he'd be proud of you for the way you have done it? Well, I think he was proud of me. I think, you know, he was able to, uh, you know, see a lot of, I think my television interviews, uh, that I've done. He read my books. He was a, we were able to send him copies of my books. A, um, he heard some radio programs that I was on. So he knew that I was making a difference and he knew that I was achieving uh, some financial success as well as some notoriety. And obviously, you know, he agreed with all the things that I was saying because I learned it all from him. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think my dad was able to experience that pride, even if he experienced it from a federal prison. Uh, that was probably one of the things that, that, that made that experience a little bit better, knowing that I was out there, you know, making a difference, even if I wasn't directly following in his, you know, tax protester footsteps. You know, he was annoyed that I paid taxes. I'm like, you know, Dad, <laughs> you know we can't all be in jail. Finally, <laughs> let's give something to our investor listener audience. What's your biggest investment right now that you really like and see potential in? And I think it's pretty fair to say you don't invest in American stocks, correct? Well, I have some, but they're a small percentage of my Mm -hmm. portfolio. But I think the best opportunity right now is the opportunity my mother blew uh, back in the 1970s, and that's gold stocks. I mean, I think that especially junior gold stocks. I think we're going to see stocks that go up 50, 100 X. I just think that that we are on the verge of the biggest boom that we've ever seen in the price of gold. I mean, gold is about 1600 an ounce as we speak. In the 1970s, when we first went off the gold standard, gold went from about $35 an ounce to over 800 in the span of a decade. Uh, That was a big move. And, And people who understood uh, what was coming made a lot of money, but you know people who were invested in bonds and the s p five hundred got wiped out during the 1970s. It was a terrible decade uh, for investors right. and I think what 's coming now is going to be even worse for your typical investors, but even better because this time it 's not just going off the gold standard. I think the dollar is going to lose its status as the reserve currency. I think it's going to fall precipitously. The dollar lost about two-thirds of its value against you know, the Deutschmark and the yen and the Swiss franc in the 1970s. I think it's going to lose an even greater percentage. How, but, but Peter, they, let me push back. How can it fall and do what you predict it will do when you have a government system that keeps putting pillows down under it to prevent any even scratches or bruises. They'll but just remember, print money. 
But that's the problem. It's the printing money that's going to destroy the dollar. You see, the government's attempt to prop everything else up, to prop up the economy, to prop up the government, to prop up housing, to prop up the stock market, it all involves printing more dollars, printing more money. So the only tool the government has is to print more money. But once the dollar starts to crash, that tool doesn't work anymore. Because if you print more money, you're just throwing gasoline on a fire. So all the money that they create in order to prop up all the other bubbles ends up pricking the dollar bubble. And then that's the end of it. And the dollar is going to be destroyed and gold is going to be remonetized around the world. And the people who invest in it now, I think, are going to make a killing. I think we're going to make more money betting against the dollar than we did betting against the subprime mortgage market. And so the, the, the next, this is the greatest trade is going to be these gold stocks. And, and nobody is doing it. And it's been a long time coming. Uh, it's, you know, I've been waiting uh, many, many years for this payday. And because they have pushed, you know, kicked the can down the road, right. I'm going to get paid a lot more. I'm waiting more, but it's going to be a bigger payoff. And people, you know, we have a gold fund. You know, I manage separately managed accounts of all gold stocks, mm -hmm. right? But I also have a fund that anybody can buy. It's the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX. It's got five stars. Uh, you know, I had I was the number one gold fund for the five years ended December uh, 2018. I think I'm one of the only gold funds that's positive this year. You'd be surprised that gold stocks, you know, were down this year, even though gold's been up. Well, the miners but, have I mean, had I, a very tough time. The miners yeah. have just languished. And now some of them are up. But yeah, but I think that's because investors don't understand how big this bull market is. All the investors are expecting the price of gold to go down, even as it keeps rising. Okay. I mean, gold is up 60% in the last four years, and people don't realize that. But if you go to the start of this century, gold is beating the S&P. Gold in 2000 was under $300 an ounce. It's over $1,600. I do so remember gold has risen, risen more than stocks, but we're just getting started. But the real opportunity these gold stocks, I think they're giving them away. They're super cheap. Obviously, they're not without risk. And if I'm wrong about this, people can lose a lot of money in gold stocks. So I'm not saying that it's a sure thing, you know, by any means. But from my perspective, right, shorting subprime wasn't a sure thing either. I had to tell people, hey, I could be wrong. Maybe housing prices will go up forever. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But if I'm right, I gave people a way to make money. If I'm right about what's going to happen to the dollar, if I'm right about what's going to happen to gold, then this is a way for people to make a lot of money. But rather than try to do it yourself and risk getting swindled like my dad did, you know, let you know, put your money in my fund because I've got a great guy, Adrian Day, managing it. In fact, I don't even manage it myself. Gold stock investing is such a niche business that I don't even know enough about it to know which ones are good and bad. So I hired somebody that's been doing it for 40 years, has a great track record. So he is running my gold fund. Peter, yeah. I knew from senior year that you were different. Our listeners of Everyone Talks to Liz, they can hear you're definitely different. I call it Peter Vision, Planet Peter. I'm yeah, thrilled to I have you on. You you really need to keep that under wraps, though, because nobody has any idea that you're that age. That's the problem. Now, you know, you're letting the cat out of the bag. I, I tell you to keep quiet about that every time I see you. That's oh, why it. I say, when you, when you say we went to school together, I say, yeah, you were my, my best pupil. I don't want people <laughs> to think you're... Well, everybody's getting older. Own it. That's how I look at it. Peter, thank you for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. My pleasure. Great to have you on, folks. 
There's always a great story behind every guest we have on Everyone Talks to Liz. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can find me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Fox Business, of course, my show, The Clayman Countdown. Have a great day. We'll see you later.